Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 226, and today's guest is Joe Kinsella, entrepreneur, CTO, and founder of Cloud Health Technologies. This is a long overdue episode, as I've been wanting to interview Joe for our podcast for quite some time. Joe's been a longtime supporter of VentureFizz and was actually one of our earliest contributors. If you look into the archives of our site, you'll find lots of blog posts where he shares advice on tech trends and building companies. What's great about Joe is the level of transparency that he shares in his stories and when giving advice, which all translates into not only a great and inspirational interview, but so much useful information. Joe founded Cloud Health Technologies in 2012 to focus on creating a new product category. And after multiple rounds of venture capital funding and years of hyper growth, the company was acquired by VMware in 2018. And here's a fun fact about Joe. He was actually part of the first Scrum team back in the early 1990s when Waterfall was the go-to methodology for developing software. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice for founders on letting go and delegating responsibilities, a journey through Joe's professional career as a software engineer and the evolution to a leadership role in terms of heading up the engineering function at startups, the full background story of cloud health from its MVP and first sale, which is a great story, to figuring out product market fit, to raising capital, and of course, scaling the company to the point of the acquisition, advice for founders on building a world-class engineering team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can get customized job alerts delivered to your inbox every day? It's a great way to keep informed of the thousands of jobs listed on VentureFizz and have jobs from a specific category sent directly to you. Don't let that career-defining opportunity pass you by. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Joe. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Keith. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, you know, it's one of these podcasts that it was probably uh, a long time in the making. It's one of these, uh, you know, you're a guest that I have uh, always thought incredibly high of for many reasons. You're an accomplished entrepreneur, but you were a very early supporter of VentureFizz. When I was looking kind of at the history of uh, cloud health technologies, you guys were, I think, one of the earliest customers early adopter of my subscription business, which is how VentureFizz ultimately, you know, keeps the lights on. Um, so, and then you were also an early contributor. So a lot of your writings ended up on VentureFizz and that was going back even earlier. So I just want to say thank you for all your support. Thank you. But, but really I should be thanking you, Keith, which is, uh, if you roll back time, we were in the hyper growth phase when we actually engaged with you. And the thing that was most important was get our brand out there. You know, people didn't know who Cloud Health Technologies uh, was in Boston. And so I think you were a big brand amplifier for us, which really um, uh, with talent acquisition. Well, it was a perfect match because obviously we're going to talk about that whole story and it was a, a great outcome. So let's... Um... You know, before we get into your background, I think one of the things I like to talk about is just something a little bit kind of off the beaten path. And what I've noticed in your role is um, there's like an evolution, right? So the founder CTO starts out in a small startup wearing so many different hats that could be divided up between multiple VPs as the company scales. So like, how do you advise people that are in a similar situation of, you know, working as a you know, a, a founder CTO, but all of a sudden the company's starting to scale. And then you have to kind of let go a little bit of different functions and then, you know, hire other people to do the job. And then your role shifts maybe towards more product strategy or something like that. So 
what advice do you have for letting go? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I think that is a common question I get from other first time CTOs that are struggling with this problem. And, and you step back and you think like, you know, when I started cloud health, it was a one person business. I was writing the code. I was working on the pitch decks. I was talking to customers. You know, I was all functions to the business. Right. And um, when you take the role of a CTO, I mean, you really effectively multiple VPs in one. You're a VP of engineering, you're a VP of operations, you're a VP of security, you're a VP of product management, you're also a C, you know, strategic outward facing CTO. And I think the key is to figure out when to let go at the right time. And a lot of CTOs hold on to it dearly. They don't want to um, uh, let go of the role because they somehow feel like their role will be diminished if they, if they uh, you know, let any piece of it go. And I always used to take this approach of uh, total baseball analogy. So I apologize. I'm a baseball geek. But if, if you remember Brock Holt on the, you know, from the Boston Red Sox, Brock Holt was this utility player that could show up at first base one night. He could be in left field. He might be at third base. He basically played across the field wherever the Red Sox needed him. And, uh, and I kind of view that as the role of the CTO, which is you've got to evolve your role. You really have to be uh, divesting yourself of the things that are not strategic in things that you can hire someone else to go do and retain for yourself strategic things that no one else can actually go do. And it's a long journey. So you just have to, at every step of the way, you can't divest yourself of all these roles, you know, right at the beginning, you just have to figure out when the right time is to let go of engineering, to let go of product management, to let go of operations and move into the new roles. Yeah, that's no, definitely a tricky thing. And it's uh, something that lots of people struggle with of, you know, being able to let go, but also hire the right people so that that job continues to perform at an optimal level, which is uh, another tricky thing is, is making the right hire. But well, let's, um, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Uh, so I grew up in a little town called Minoa, New York, which is in uh, central New York outside of Syracuse, a little tiny town that if you closed your eyes, you probably would miss it as you were driving through it. So um I um, really loved baseball um, uh, my entire life. At six years old, I believe not became a Yankee fan. So there's a long story of how I converted to the Red Sox. It may or may not fit in this podcast, but grew up a Yankee fan and um, I love baseball. But when I was 11, my dad brought home an Apple II. And uh, it was the first time I'd seen a computer. It was the first time I was introduced to writing code. And I just fell in love with it. It was, um, you know, I fell in love with it so much that when I was in high school, um, I had spent most of my life assuming I was going to be an aerospace engineer. Um, why? Because it was a, uh, you know, I kind of thought I would go work at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and, you know, I love space. And, um, but my dad said, so what do you want to be? And, uh, and I said, well, I, I want to be a, you know, aerospace engineer. He's like, what about computers? You seem to like computers. I had no idea that there was a, uh, you know, a major called computer science when I was in high school. And so, uh, so my dad kind of steered me in the direction of my passion, which was building software. Good advice from your father. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had an Apple II at one point as well. I had a Texas Instruments TI 994A was my first computer, but then um, my dad had his own business and they had an Apple II that uh, <laughs> they were really early on. They like did many, uh, inventory control with the computer, which was uh, kind of groundbreaking at the time, but That's um, yeah. Okay. So uh, you graduated with a computer science degree. So, so how did you, your career get started? 
Um, so I graduated in a recession. I, um, you know, wanted a job in software engineering. Like that was literally my dream is I just wanted to write software for a living. I couldn't believe people would actually pay me to go do that, but that, you know, I, I wanted to achieve that dream. And I spent a lot of time applying to jobs. And um, I noticed all the jobs were either in the California area. I had no idea what the Silicon Valley was at the time, believe it or not. And, uh, or they were in the Boston area. And um, so I applied everywhere, got rejected everywhere. And um, finally, when I graduated, I, I packed up my car and I drove to Boston because it was a hell of a lot closer than San Francisco. And I started looking for a job. And, um, and I was fortunate, you know, I, I looked, um, I think I spent two weeks, I was uh, staying with my sister. And at the end of two weeks, I didn't have a job. And I thought I was gonna, you know, go home as a failure and, you know, give up on this idea of having a software job in Boston. And my sister said, why don't you give it a couple more weeks? And uh, the very next week, I actually got a job offer from a company that was based in Burlington called Easel Corporation, which, believe it or not, is the genesis of the first Scrum team, which is by itself an entirely different story, which is I was a, a member of the very first Scrum team coming out of college. That's cool. Wow, that's a fascinating experience to kind of get into Scrum at that, because this is 1991. One. Okay. Yeah. So things were waterfall, heavy waterfall, heavy waterfall. So I, I so I, you think about it, I came out of school at this um, nexus of uh, the world was all based on waterfall, but there was the beginning of the, these adaptations that were occurring where people were looking for a new and different way. And um, uh, we brought in a CTO, Jeff Sutherland. If you know, Jeff, Jeff is a, um, uh, you know, one of the signers of the agile manifesto and, and uh, one of the early um, agile evangelists. And Jeff was my manager, and um, and I was in, you know, I was the third person on this team that probably grew to maybe twelve people over time, but um, but I didn't know you, you, you know, I didn't know what what waterfall was, so it didn't really matter to me that we were doing things differently. Like, you know, we very quickly started doing standups, we started doing rapid releases, we did customer development. I actually flew out to customers and co-developed on on site with customers, which was something that was absolutely unheard of for commercial software at the time, but. Um, but it was a fantastic experience, I think, and shaped how I built teams and, and led teams for, you know, all the years that followed. So what did you do after that? Um, so, so after Easel, I went off and I uh, joined a company called ProCD. Um, I, I think at that point in time, if you kind of look at my entire career, I like to say I've done one thing since the age of 11, which is I, I, I built software. Mm -hmm. And I played every role, which is if you kind of look across my, my career, I've been a software engineer. I've been a, a dev dev lead. I've been an architect. I've been a engineering manager, multi-time VP of engineering, you know, multi-time CTO. Founded two companies along the way. But after that, I went and I I, I joined a company called ProCD, which was focused on consumer software. It's really my only foray into consumer at the time, and uh, ended up uh, building some really mass market software there that was very successful. And and from there, I actually found my way into. Um, this crazy company that many people have forgotten called Firefly, which was uh, when, I, when I saw that on your LinkedIn, I'm like, Firefly, was that Patty May's company? It was. <laughs> yeah, I saw it. So when I was, I cut my teeth in recruiting in 1998. That's when I started to get really into the tech industry. And I went to a, it was probably like an MIT Enterprise Forum event. And Patty Mays was on the speaker. And that's when I, my mind was just blown that I need to be like in this industry because I just saw how brilliant she was, what she was doing. And I was just like, okay, I found my home. Because before I was in tax consulting, which was just not me. <laughs> like, so anyways. Yes, yes. I, by the way, I did not know that. Um, yeah, no, what what, uh, what Firefly was working on was what was called collaborative filter, filtering. Think of it as 
machine learning before its time. And, you know, effectively we could, if you tell us movies you like, we could project and say, okay, here's other movies you would like, or news articles you would like. We could project and say, you'd be interested in these new news articles, which is really what powers the web today. Um, it, you know, is this technology. In fact, one of our early customers was, uh, was Amazon. And- uh, Was it really? It really was, yeah. It's wow. actually, um, there's a book, um, uh, called the Everything Store um, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. about Amazon, and you'll yeah. actually find Firefly mentioned in that book. Ah, that's a book <laughs> I've been meaning to read, actually. It's a great book, by the way. And um, yeah, so so you know, for, at Firefly, I really learned um, web scale. We were number nine website in the world. I was building big backend distributed systems at a time a lot of people didn't know how to build big backend distributed systems. And um, uh, really enjoyed that experience. Uh, led a, uh, you know the community team, which was all about all the community features, which was kind of a fusion of, of um, you can think of it almost as like a chat, bulletin boards, and a variety of other technologies that that in many ways um, almost almost stepped into the space of a social network before its time. This would be another discussion for another day, but uh, there, I mean, there were so many companies that were building the foundation blocks of what the web is today in Boston back then, like a buzz technologies. They were building some of this stuff Amazon. too. Like, yeah. So it just, there's, there's a lot of history of first generation, like um, tripod, yeah, yeah, like they were like the first tripod. websites to be created. They were acquired by Lycos, but anyways. I mean, those were heady days. I'm sure you remember them, uh, you know, but it was like, we thought we were changing the world back then. We were all 20 somethings who, who thought that we were going to change the way that people consumed information, the way governments ran, the way elections ran, you know, every, we were going to be healthier and smarter and better at what we did because of the internet. And it's uh, interesting to fast forward and see how much of it came true. And then how much of it also had a dark side to it as well. Yeah, very true. All right. So what happened next? Um, so, so from there I went off and I, um, I started a company after that, that failed my, I like to call that my obligatory, um, failed.com, uh, boom startup. Uh, I, I found my way after that into consulting. Um, uh, uh so I did, I built out large backend distributed systems to support, um, uh, websites for multiple different companies across the Boston area. Um, uh, some of which were acquired over the years. And then I found my way to um, the space that I've spent most of my career in, which is I, I joined a company called Silverback Technologies. It was actually one of my customers as I, uh, you know, as a consulting uh, business. And uh, they eventually convinced me to join on the other side of the dot-com bust. And, uh, and, and that was all about remote management and IT monitoring and, and, and we're really where I've spent the majority of my career over these years. And so from Silverback, Silverback was acquired by Dell. Um, I spent um, three years at Dell. I like to say two I can explain, the third I can't. Uh, and then from Dell, I actually had the idea to go start um, uh, Cloud Health. And, uh, and I tried in 2010 to actually start Cloud Health Technologies. It's actually, for me, it's, it's, it's one of those lessons where so many people celebrate entrepreneurs and assume that it's the entrepreneur solely that's responsible for the success of a business. And they forget how much of it, it is not just the entrepreneur, but the idea, the people you hire, your execution. But then there's this other component of luck, which is had I started Cloud Health Technologies in 2010 instead of 2012, had I, in other words, had I not failed, I think Cloud Health wouldn't have been the company that it was. Yeah, timing is so, so important. Lots of great ideas, but the timing is off and the market's not ready to adopt. It can be the, uh, 
the failure of, uh, of that idea. So, uh, so during that stretch, you did work at a, uh, a company Sony in for a bit before you I did. did take that leap of faith. Okay. Yeah. So, so what I did is, um, in 2010, I was shopping the idea of cloud health around to investors. And, um, the story I like to tell people is, is that investors told me I had a really, really bad idea. Um, uh, and that was pretty much near universal across, uh, Boston venture investors that I spoke with. So the idea was, was it the same idea of like, Hey, everybody's starting to move things to the cloud. Cause when I looked at Amazon web services, so according to the almighty Google, it started in 2006. So this is four years of Amazon saying, Hey, we're going to start this thing called the cloud. And everyone was like, yeah. what? Uh, so four years later, it was probably still early for adoption of that, especially in enterprises. So where investors just like, they don't need that. <laughs> Investors were convinced it was, um, you know, it was a small market. They thought the money was going to be in the private cloud. Enterprises would never adopt the public cloud. This was a constant refrain I heard. Right. And uh, I mean, the, the funny bookend to it is, is that what I found when I rolled out in 2012 after Sony, and, and I'll tell, tell you more about that shortly, I found that instead of uh, thinking it was a really, really bad idea, investors just told me it was a bad idea. So I figured that's progress in two years, right? <laughs> right. Less uh, bad or less release. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Sony for me was formative, which is it was, um, it, it was a, a case of, it was my failure, which is I couldn't start Cloud Health in 2010. My plan B was I got recruited by a former venture firm that had invested in um, Silverback to come in as um, head of engineering for a company that was doing cloud archiving uh, in the public cloud at scale. And, uh, and, and that was such a, um, a pivotal moment for me, which is I think I was in the company three months when I got my first $350,000 bill from AWS. And you, know, you think $350,000 a month bill may sound less impressive now, but this was 2010 that I was right. getting right? Yeah. This was a huge bill. And that kind of set me on the path of really um, dealing with all the challenges of scale in the public cloud. And, um, and, and I, you know, I used to spend enormous amounts of time in spreadsheet and writing scripts, just trying to, you know, tame this, you know, incredibly fast moving world of infrastructure in the public cloud. And I, I think I was there a, a grand total of 18 months, but I was 12 months in when I realized, what am I doing? Like the idea that investors told me was a really, really bad idea. I am 100% right on this idea. And they're just simply wrong. And so I planned my transition out. I did a nice clean exit out. I rolled out um, uh, of the company with, I think I had uh, one of my sons was in elementary school and the other had just entered middle school. And uh and I had no job, I uh, had no money coming in. And, and you know, it was just a question of how do I figure out how to bootstrap this idea and get this off the ground? Okay, so this is now 2012. And so how did you get started? It was just you with this idea and how did you get started? Yeah, so I think what I did at the time was I decided um, I needed to have structure to what I did. So the first thing I did is I um, convinced a former board member from Silverback, uh, Jeff McCarthy at Northbridge Ventures to let me just set up shop as an EIR at Northbridge so that I had a place to work and I had some, some structure to my day. And then I started to break things into, uh, effectively, you can think of them as sprints, which is I would run experiments every two weeks. And the experiments were intended to prove or disprove the hypothesis. So this was one of the things I did is, even though I had the product idea of cloud health, 
I was more interested in exploring the market agnostic of the product idea and in let, you know, I call it telescoping down as opposed to pivoting. Like pivoting is really hard to do, but when you telescope from a big market to, you know, a subset of that market, it's a lot less painful than, than, than actually having to pivot your business. And so I ran experiments that, you know, each experiment was focused on narrowing the idea of cloud health. And um, experiments were everything from sometimes I put up, you know, fake websites and drove traffic to them to sometimes it was a, um, a survey that I uh, sent out to different audiences. Um, some were customer interviews along the way. And then, you know, one of my most successful experiments was a concierge service. It was a, a, effectively a white glove um, uh, service that I was the service. There was no product involved. It was, it was me. And I delivered my service to five companies to really understand their pain points and deliver value to them while I was actually gaining the validated learning required to start Cloud Health. So what was the point where you finally were able to telescope down to the, okay, I, I, I've got it. This is where I can at least begin to build a, a, a product and a company. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a funny story. So, um, uh, and I, I love to tell it because it's, um, it's, it's funny and it really at the same time, it's, it, you know, it's um, uh, incredibly true, which is I was running this experiment called the sale and I built this very crude MVP product. So just to give you a little background, I was a one person business. I was doing everything myself at this point in time. And, uh, and I had a set of advisors in the background that were giving me advice, but at the end of the day, I had to wake up and do everything related to my business. And so I had this crude MVP based on all the previous experiments, and it, was, it wasn't worth um, $250 a month, what I had built. It, was, um, you know, it looked like stick figures and really crude diagrams, but, but behind it was what I was hearing customers tell me was their pain point. And so the sale was this idea that I had concluded I needed a, a average selling price of about $50,000 a year, you know, say four, 4K or so uh, a month. And so I wanted to see what would it take to actually get to, you know, 50K ASP. And so the sale was designed to fail, which is I was going to go in with this crude product to customers that didn't know me. I was going to try to sell this value proposition. I would profoundly fail because it wasn't worth $250. And in the process of failing, I would derive the validated learning I would derive would be they would tell me what was missing to get them to the point where they would pull the trigger on the, this product at that price point. Right. And um, so I got introduced to a company and uh, had this very you know, terrible call with their CFO who really didn't understand the value proposition, um, didn't seem that interested, wanted me to give him the product for free. And I was trying to get off the call thinking maybe my experiment is wrong. And um, at the end, of, you know, at the end of the call, he said, no, no, no. He said, I want you to meet our VP of engineering tomorrow. And so I was like, great, I'll meet your VP of engineering tomorrow. I have no idea why you want me to meet the VP of engineering tomorrow, because this was <laughs> not a very good call. But, right. um, but so the next day I set up a, a web meeting, I get on the call and I very quickly find myself, I'm in a virtual room with five or six other people, and they know as much about this problem space as I know about this problem space. Like they are near experts on the problems I was solving. And um, we started with some slides and vision of where I thought it could go. And uh, very quickly, it moved into them wanting to see product and drilling into deep questions. And, and, um, and I had such a great meeting. I just wanted to get off the call and enjoy the moment. And I forgot all about the experiment. I wasn't asking them to 
purchase the product. And so as I try to get off the meeting, they keep talking. I try to get off the meeting, they keep talking. And then finally, there's this awkward silence and the VP of engineering says, sure, we'll buy. And uh, with <laughs> <ironing> being, <laughs> I didn't ask like, him to uh, buy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I tried to talk him out of the sale. I was like, well, you know, I talked to um, your CFO yesterday. He said, um, he said he's not interested. Again, awkward silence. And the VP of engineering says, well, Steve's in the room and Steve says we can buy. So of course, take two. Now I tell him, but it's $50,000 thinking that of course, no one's going to spend $50,000 on this product. Again, awkward silence follows and, and um, the VP of engineering comes back and he says, just send us the order form. We're good. Uh, you're like, uh... And so that was the moment I realized I had accumulated so much validated learning and I built enough value without actually even, I was so close to it. I couldn't see how much value I had built right. where, where I found a company that was willing to bet on the promise of what cloud health could be. And that was my first customer. When I left VMware seven weeks ago, they were still our first customer. And, um, we used to every reinvent, we would get together for a big dinner with them and just celebrate the partnership that created Cloud Health. That's so cool. And I think that's an important data point for entrepreneurs. It's, I'll never forget, like the first recruiting firm that I worked for, uh, Darwin Partners, they did an amazing job training people. And uh, part of the training was Sandler sales training. And I'll never forget, no pain, no sale. They would just drill that into your head. Uh, so you found a pain that you were able to solve that someone will pay money for. And if that's a very simple formula, but it's a formula that works. A lot of entrepreneurs build things that they think are a pain, but it's not that big of a pain that we're willing to spend money on, or it's not something that's a priority, right? So it's uh, it's identifying where's the pain. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, if you look at it, if if you can break down you know features in your product into you know must have, important, and nice to have, at that phase of your business, you need to only be investing in must-have features. And so the key is to, to make sure that everything you are doing is going to have a yield for your business. Otherwise, you won't find a durable market. Otherwise, you won't be able to really build a viable business. So at that point where you're like, okay, I've got, I figured out what the product is going to be. And then did you start to talk to investors about raising or did you just bootstrap it and start to generate revenue, hire some people? Like, how did you even get to the next step, step beyond just being you? Yeah, so um, so funny story to end that story is um, mm -hmm. I, I ran to get a uh, contract because I didn't, not only did I not have a contract, <laughs> I, I didn't even have a legal entity that I was actually right. transacting this business under. And so I found a contract on the web. I said, this looks great. I sent it to them, they signed it, they sent it back. And it was only after the company was actually up and running and we had about 10 employees that our CFO came to me and said, why is it our first customer has a reseller agreement? And I just randomly grabbed a reseller agreement. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so, so, so I think at that point in time, um, what, I, what I did from there is I had $50,000 now um, coming in. I went, I ran the experiment again. I closed another uh, customer, another $50,000. I had hundred K in ARR in my business and I'm not a sales guy. So at right. that point in time, that by itself was telling me something. And so I convened all my advisors together. I think I had six or seven advisors at the time and I invited them all to Northbridge um, uh, Ventures, which was in Waltham at the time. And, and uh, I brought them into our big boardroom and I had drinks and dinner and as the partners were leaving and were uncorking bottles of wine, I'm sure they were wondering what the hell I was doing. 
And, uh, and I had two questions for them, which is um, question one was, um, do I continue bootstrapping this business or do I go raise a round of venture capital? And question two was, am I the CEO or do I go hire a CEO? And we had this really lively debate and um, near universally, my advisors came back and said, this market's happening now, go raise venture capital right away. And you have no passion to be the CEO so why don't you just go hire a CEO? And that's exactly what I did. And that was really the beginning of Cloud Health. Okay, that's another interesting data point. So, you know, kind of recognizing that you didn't want to assume that seat. How did you go about finding your CEO? So, so at the time I, I started a CEO search, um, I had uh, five different CEOs of which I think three of them were my advisors. Um, uh, uh, so I think I had some people that were close to me that, um, were, were credible CEOs for this business. And I'd gone back to, um, uh, I don't know if you know Dan Phillips, but um, uh, Dan was our, our uh, you know, was our CEO who came in right at the beginning of the business and, and um, uh, co-founder of the business. And Dan and I have known each other at that point in time, probably the better part of, you know, 12, 13 years. And uh, I went and I just gave him the update on the business, told him I was doing a CEO search. And he just looked at me and flatly said, why am I not the CEO? And, uh, and at the time, I never even had considered him because he was, he was in UMass Boston. He was driving their entrepreneurship program there. He seemed very, you know, very much on a path that was not about going back and doing another crazy, wild, early stage startup. So at that point in time, I said, hmm why are you not the CEO? And uh, from there, we actually um, worked the deal and Dan came on board, I think it was December, 2012. So how much of the business, you know, did you have to focus on now building a product that could scale based on sales and how much was spent on sales, like building that sales engine with the go-to-market? Yeah, I think it's one of the, um, I think mistakes people make is premature scaling is mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people think that they're ready for scale and they're not. I think the big surprise for me in the business was I thought I had product market fit. Um, and, and I define product market fit as the abil ability to repeatedly sell a value proposition into a target market with predictable success. And I choose each of those words very carefully because so many people think product market fit is about the product and whether or not it has the right features, but product market fit is really about a business model and whether or not you can actually generate a viable business selling a product or service into a target market. And so, um, so we were surprised, which is we brought in um, a really tremendously talented um, sales leader and um, he went out to sell and here I, I had 100K in ARR and he couldn't sell the product for more than 250 or $500 a month and everything was discounted because, because the product was, was not quite what they wanted it to be. And, um, and so we had to face the harsh reality that we really were not at product market fit. And so this, I think we really fully realized this around probably um, May, June of 2013. And uh, from there, we just, you know, buckled down and we just drove towards product market fit, which, which you know, it's itself, it's, it's its own story is, you know, I, I date product market fit to February, 2014. Like I, there was an exact moment at which we had achieved product market fit. And you can actually see it in our charts, which is, as soon as we hit that point, we had the up and to the right charts that every venture investor, you know, looks for in their portfolio companies. But before that, it was a very, um, uh, you know, it, it was a very unpredictable business. So then you had that hockey stick growth 
what was what was that market fit that you realized? Like, what was that pain point that was like, okay, this is something that's going to scale and be repeatable? It was it was every aspect of the business model. So it started with how we find those customers, which is you know we were finding customers you know early in the business that didn't have the pain, and so it became how do you find and target those customers that have the pain, and then it became how do you bring them through a sales process where you have clear entrance and exit criteria where you can close your fair share of deals. And then how is it you can actually get the product so that the product value proposition pulls itself through that sale and is successful for that customer and you make happy customers. And, and I think as we figured it out, we got towards end of 2013, early 2014, and all that was left was one simple feature in the product. Believe it or not, it was a, a set of reports in the product that were missing. Like we figured out every aspect of this business model, except there were like one or two features missing in the product. And once we added those one or two features and then went out and communicated this to the world, everything took off. So at that point, like what, what was Cloud Health doing? Like, what was that report? Was it monitoring the uptime of their cloud provider or like, what was the? In the, in the early business, we were collecting all of your inventory of everything you were running. Um, we were keeping track of all the change that was occurring across your inventory of everything that was running. We were pulling all of your bills and all of your costs and correlating that with what you were running. And then we put a lightweight construct to allow you to look at costs from a business perspective. And that's kind of where we were at. And it, you know, if you look at, we had all the basics of cloud health um, was there. It was just really missing a way to just finally bring it home to your target, you know, to, to our target customers. And once we added this set of reports, everything, everything transformed. And what was the competitive landscape at that point in time? Like, were there other companies doing something similar or kind of starting to nudge into the market a little bit? Yeah, I think at that time there were maybe four startups that were in um, a space. They were, they were all in a space that you could look at was cloud management, but they were all doing some form of cost management for startups in addition to us. And, um, but we were also different at the time. Like one was focused on security and another was focused on the CFO and everyone was kind of coming at it from a different perspective based on their journey as entrepreneurs. Um, so, so it had the, the you know, possibility of being a really um, difficult competitive landscape. But once we figured it out, we were like, a, you know, uh, we, we were driven and we just, you know, effectively decimated the competition and took this market uh, by sheer force of will. And, and not just by sheer force of will, but also by, by having great customers who were thought leading customers and really knowing how to listen to them. And that's a good point, because we started out the conversation talking about, you know, letting go of things. So at that point, once you kind of hit this hockey stick growth, was that when your role transitioned into, you know, being market facing, listening to customers and constantly being more of the strategic minded CTO, co-founder? Yeah, it went through phases. So I would say in 2015, um, early 2015, I was still writing code. I was probably the single greatest contributor to code in the product. I'm not saying that proudly, but that is probably a reality if somebody went back and looked at GitHub. Um, and I started to realize, what am I doing? Like I can hire people who write better code than me. And I can assure you my engineering team will all tell you that's the case. And, um, but what I can't do is I can't hire somebody to get in front of the customer and see where, where, where there's the intersection of what technology can achieve and what customers want. 
And, uh, and, and so I, I started to realize now is the time to bring in a VP of engineering. So step one was bringing in a VP of engineering, after which I focused really more on the product, product management side of the business. Um, and then um, over time, I think it was around 2017, 16 and 17, I brought in a VP of product management. And then I truly became the strategic thought leading, uh, you know, CTO who's looking out two plus years in the market. And I was also the brand. I was, I was out talking at conferences and, and trying to make people understand what the, what the market was all about and who Cloud Health was. How, how important do you think that is to have that externally facing co-founder that's evangelizing? Because that's something that I'm sure the marketing team, sales team, like appreciated of having someone like Joe speaking at an industry conference, because that's going to raise a lot of interest of inbound leads and you know feed yeah. the teams. Yes. I think if you're building a product in a, in a, a new product category, you're going to have to do this. Now, you, you don't need to do it before product market fit. You don't need to do it in the early growth stage. It's just, a, you know, in many ways, I think you're just wasting your time at that point in time. But once you're in the growth phase, um, you need to teach the market uh, what the, you know, what it is that you're doing and how it's different and, and why it matters to them. You know, and I just remember at the time, um, you'd go talk to analysts and analysts could not explain what we were doing. Like, you know, we would go to an analyst and we'd end up having to talk to, you know, six different analysts at an analyst firm because, because they could only see the market based on their org structure of how they covered different areas of existing markets. They couldn't understand new markets that were just emerging and didn't have a name to them yet. And so it took a while to actually go teach the market what it was we did and why it actually mattered. And how much of that also related to uh, hiring, right? Like, cause we'd start off the conversation about your thinking of employment branding, which back then that wasn't like, it's very uh, part of what talent acquisition thinks about now. And some marketing teams also participate in the employment branding side of helping to attract the greatest talent, but it wasn't, a thing then it was starting to become a thing. It was some early rumblings of this term employment branding, but I just think of you guys, you guys made a lot of noise in the Boston tech scene to help let people know that there's a company that's pretty special being built here. Come join and be part of this rocket ship. Yeah. I think we very quickly realized that talent was everything, which is, you know, I think if there was a secret to our success, we hired great people and then we, um, we, we gave them a sense of mission and then we got the hell out of their way. And um, but that whole pipeline starts with hiring great people. And so uh, so we really quickly realized that this was going to be our gating factor and that we needed a brand. We needed people to people to know who we were and they needed to know why they wanted to work with us. And it was an authentic brand for us, which is one of the things we were great at is we grew people's careers. Um, you know, we at Cloud Health, we we took the time to invest in people. You know, one I've dozens of these stories, but one I like to tell us is, is that. One of our interns from UMass Boston went off and, you know, ended up leading our European sales organization. And that was over just, you know, five or six years uh, he did this at Cloud Health. That's a trajectory you can't achieve in most businesses. And even if you have growth, many businesses wouldn't take that chance on their talent. And I think that's one of the ways that we really made, made a name for ourselves. Okay, so fast forward, you know, you raised multiple rounds of venture capital funding, grew to, I think, 500 
people, something along those lines? Yeah, so I think um, we were over 500 in 2019. I think at time of acquisition, we were um, a little over 200, which was end of 2018. Got it. Okay, so uh, I'm always fascinated by the acquisition story. So you're building your heads down, building this company, you're raising capital, you're hiring, you got product market fit. I'm assuming you're just heads down focused yet at some point there's this conversation of an acquisition. So does a company like VMware just start talking about, Hey, we want to have a strategic conversation, which is, you know, code word for acquisition. Uh, like how does that even start those conversations? It was interesting. So VMware was certainly not the first. So, um, so we had multiple um, companies come in and, and, you know, basically pursue um, an acquisition with us. And that started, I want to say it started in 2016 um, and, you know, maybe 2015 and 16. And, um, and we consistently got to know, I'm not saying it was easy to get to know, but we consistently got to know. Um, but in the case of VMware, it started as a partnership um, looking to license our product. Uh, and, you know, you think it made perfect sense, which is um, VMware was, was, you know, at the time VMware had shifted its cloud strategy. It had, you know, deep entrenched um, thought leadership and, and, and brand among the generation and the personas that were focused on the data center, but they really did not have any brand and thought leadership with the new personas that were driving the public cloud. And that, you know, the, that was our only customer was, you know, the personas powering the public cloud. And so they were really looking for, you know, how they get into that market. And, um, you know, and I think we presented a great opportunity, but it started as we want to uh, license your technology and then eventually became a conversation about how to acquire the company. Got it. Okay. So uh, the acquisition did happen, obviously. And, um, you know, when you look back, like, like you talked about shaping people's careers, that would be one answer to this question, but like, like, what are you the most proud of as far as, you know, building cloud health and, you know, the uh, acquisition by VMware? I, I think if I was to pick one thing, it's the impact that we've had on the people that worked at Cloud Health and the impact that we had on the customers, I guess, um, that used Cloud Health, which is, you know, and I'll give examples of both, which is, you know, we have companies that went public as a result of using Cloud Health and getting their P&L, you know, in shape to be actually uh, be able to go public and have successful public offerings. And, you know, I've had, um, you know, uh, CEOs directly tell me that. Uh, and at the same time, I look at the careers of our people, which is, I think, people who came into cloud health and made the investment, uh, you know, and, and made it their company. Those people's careers are forever altered, which is they have a, um, an advantage over any of their peers that went on different paths because um, uh, they chose cloud health and they grew their career at a trajectory that many other people um, uh, couldn't keep pace with. Now, I went through the archives of Venture Fizz because I'm like, I, like, when did Joe you know, start to contribute some uh, of his blog posts to us? And you had a, a, a post back in 2010, acquisition tips for the startup executive that had to deal with Dell's acquisition of Silverback. So, you know, having this experience happen again and, you know, 10, 11 years later, what, what, it, what tips would you give for the startup executive now on acquisitions? Um, 
I think, you know, first, you, I think you have to um, uh, focus on your team, first and foremost, which is you're, you're getting acquired in almost all cases for the um, people, technology, and, and maybe also the business, but not always uh, also the business. In our case, it was, it was all three. But uh, I think it's, uh, you need to bring your team in, you need time to assimilate yourself to be able to really be authentic and credible in terms of evangelizing the opportunity of the new company to your team. So to me, it all comes down to, you know, team, 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 focus on how you can bring your team in, how you can get them successfully integrated, how you can help them feel part of the broader mission of the company. And yes, your company will change. And yes, your culture will, will change. But I think um, it can change in positive ways if you do it right and you do it gradually and you don't try to force it. But that said, you also have to pick uh, the right suitor, which is, um, you know, it, it, there are many companies that came and pitched us on acquisitions over the years. And I don't think that our people would have been happy working for them. And uh, so I think it's really important to find companies that are going in the same direction, that strategically value what you're doing. Um, uh, and at the same time, have a culture that will fit your people and your, your business. Now, what, what about you specifically? You recently you know, decided to, that it was time to move on. Um, you know, cloud health was something you built from grounds, you know, the, the first line of code, um, first ideas to the point of an acquisition. And then after three years or so, uh, decided that it was time to move on. There's a lot that goes behind that decision. I'm sure it was very, um, uh, emotional one and, and something that you did not take lightly. So, so what, you know, I'm sure other entrepreneurs have, you know, who have been fortunate to have that type of acquisition probably wrestle with something similar. So, so what goes behind making that decision? I think uh, it's, I actually resigned last year. So I gave six months notice, um, hired my replacement and tried to do a very clean transition. Um, I actually left VMware early May um, what it really came down to for me was first, it was a year of change. I mean, um, you know, I, whoever would have thought we would live through a pandemic, right? Right. Um, I found myself instead of uh, being in the Boston area, I spent the pandemic down on Cape Cod. So, so I was already dealing with the change of remote working, you know, living in a different place. And, uh, and then I think VMware had a lot of change going on, like every other tech firm that was uh, really trying to keep up with the opportunities that, um, uh, that were presented by this big shift of the workforce. I think in the process of doing all that, I just started to do the soul searching of what is it that drives me. And, um, and I think I kind of came back and realized that, that for me, it's, it's the 11-year-old kid with the Apple II computer in me that, that I think is who I really am today, which is... I'm all about building products. And, you know, I think I've learned um, early in my career as I started doing it professionally, I like building products that really matter to customers. And then a little bit later in my career, as I got a little wiser, I realized I want to build products that matter to customers with people I want to build products that matter to customers with, right? And, uh, and so I think that's my mission statement of who I am. And I realized that, um, you know, it's, it's, it really that skill set is best suited to an early stage startup. And so I think at this point in time, I think um, I'd like to go start another cloud health and, um, uh, and, and maybe build something, um, you know, bigger and even more impactful than what, what, what we did over the last few years. So you're in that, I would assume that exploratory stage now of decompressing, recharging the batteries yet on the lookout for that next idea. That's right. I'm uh 
I'm spending a lot of time uh, with other entrepreneurs. I'm talking to investors. I'm uh, investigating markets. I actually ran my first lean experiment in one of two markets that interest me. So that was the, you know, uh, an interesting milestone for me. But I'm also not in a rush, which is, um, I, you know, I think entrepreneurship takes a toll on you. And, uh, you know, being always on working effectively seven days a week, um, you know, uh, there's a cost to, to, to what it takes to actually build a, a successful business. And, and so I, I also need a little time to recharge. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in this mode of I want to jump in and have that sense of mission again and go build another business. And at the same time, I don't want to do it too quickly because it's going to be the next eight or nine years of my life. It must have been a little uneasy feeling at first when you didn't have to like look at your phone 50 times a day and like, <laughs> must have been it like was, odd. It was anxiety producing. Yes. It's like I know it doesn't make sense, but it was um I've always had a mission. I've always woken up and I know professionally what I need to do that day to make a difference. And it was at first it was just really disquieting for me to wake up and not have that same sense of mission, but but I think I'm, you know, seven weeks on the other side, I'm comfortable with it now. And I think I'm actually enjoying it. I'm, I'm, I've really reconnected back with the Boston tech scene. I'm really impressed with the tremendous set of young entrepreneurs that are building their businesses in Boston right now. Um, so I've just been really enjoying just the, um, you know, intellectual discussions that are occurring right now that, that I'm sure will, um, you know, find their way into my next business. Now, building a world-class engineering team is very hard. Hiring engineers is hard, no matter what market. Like right now, it is insane. So what advice would you give to, uh, you know, founders on building that world-class engineering team? I think, you know, as we highlighted, uh, CloudElf did a good job of building a brand, which kind of raised awareness of the company. But you still had to convince engineers that, hey, this is where you want to spend a good two, five plus years of your career. Um, so so how, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I think um, I, I learned early in my career as a hiring manager that technologies didn't matter. You know, a great engineer can figure out any technology. So, you know, uh, whether whether it's, you know, Node.js or, you know, some some other technology that you want people to learn, like putting that on your job requirements doesn't really help you, which is at the end of the day, what I hire for is I look for engineers that have really rigorous analytics, that are passionate, that are self-driven, that are team-oriented and really care about the customer. Like if you have that set of attributes, I want to work with you. And, uh, and, and you know, it's one of those things where I just recently rewatched, I don't know if you've watched this, Keith, but have you watched the Lost interview with Steve Jobs? I might have. I'm pretty sure I have at some point on YouTube or something, right? Tremendous. Yeah. So, so, um, uh, so I went and for whatever reason, I rewatched it recently and there's a quote in there that just has always stuck with me. And, um, and it's that Steve Jobs was talking about that the dynamic range between like average and good in most industries, in most jobs is like 30%, 20%, maybe 40%. So I think in his example, he gave the example of like, the best cab driver is going to get you to your place in New York City 30% faster than the average cab, uh, cab driver. But his point was in the areas of software that you have a dynamic range of 20 to one, 50 to one, where there's this amplifier impact of great people. And so his point was find those great people, 
put them together and great things will happen. And I think in essence, it's everything I believe in, which is, um, you know, I think if you can find those great people and then give them that sense of mission, I think that's maybe the, you know, once they come in, you can't just hire great people. You need them to feel like this is their company and they, they're protective of their company. They want their company to be successful. It's as much there as, as it is yours. And if you can do that, great things will happen. As we talked about, you uh, have been one that has really taken your own your own personal brand seriously. Like you have been writing a blog for a long time. Um, you know, so look, I think some founders have an interest in doing that, yet they don't have the time or they're like, oh, I just won't be good at it. Or like, so like, why is it useful for a founder to have that own personal brand and how do you go about creating it? Yeah, I think if you look today, there's so much choice in the world for people who are looking for jobs and people want to work with people they want to work with. And so the more you can actually let people know authentically who you are, and um, both in a good way and maybe even some of your weaknesses as well, I think it helps people scale up the um, you know, understanding whether or not you're somebody they actually want to invest in and you're somebody that they, they want to go work with. And so for me, that's what it's all about, which is um, I, I've hired most of my engineers through coffee meetings. And, um, and in the coffee meeting, it's a chance for me to get to know the engineer in a really you know, non-sales situation where I sincerely want to know who they are and they get to know who I am. In many ways, you know, investing in brand for me is scaling up my coffee meetings. It's just letting people know this is who I am. This is what I value. You may or may not want to work with me, but I'm going to give you as much information as possible so that you can, you can make that choice. Yeah. And I, I agree. I mean, having the content out there, because when people are searching for jobs now, they're doing the same level of research as if they were buying a car, a home, they're going to go into Google and put the founder's name in and see what comes up. They may listen to a podcast. They may look at the personal blog, whatever, but they're going to do their homework on that individual. So the more content that you have out there, the more they get an idea of, you know, how you think your approach, you know, could be things around how you think about culture. So there's so much that I think is useful for founders to, you know, take that role seriously. I agree. And I think it's one of those things that we usually put on the not to do list because we're so busy with everything else, but the number one job of any founder is hiring. And, uh, you know, I think this, this is a real accelerant to hiring. So what are your, um, go-to podcast or book recommendations that you uh, tend to, to promote out there other than the VentureFizz podcast, of course. VentureFizz, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so book I'm um, two thirds of the way through is um, uh, local uh, Tom Eisenman, um, uh, Why Startups Fail. Interesting. Um, uh, a lot of it is um, things I've lived and, and a lot of mistakes I've made um, distilled into that book. Um, so really good read. I think he's an HBS professor, so I'd highly recommend that. And I tell you, there's a podcast totally out of tech that has, um, you know, I've been enamored with. It's called The Fall of Civilizations. And it's, uh, it's basically each episode takes some civilization in history and it, and it follows it from its beginning all the way to its end. And it is absolutely fascinating. Part of that is I'm a history buff, but, uh, but just an incredibly well done, you know, uh, high production value podcast that um, I'm fascinated with. 
who, who do you know who produces that as like a wandery type of thing or I do not know. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, so that's like, I love recommendations like that because I need to do things other than just listen to tech entrepreneurship, venture capital. It's just like, I love it, but I, I, sometimes I need to go somewhere else and things like history. I'm like, man, I wish I knew more about, you know, history of civilization, things like that, which just make me a more well-rounded person. So I'm going to check that out. Awesome. Well, Joe, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through uh, your background story, obviously uh, everything you did in terms of building a, a great company with Cloud Health and obviously all the great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Thank you, Keith. Really appreciate you um, uh, having me on your podcast and um, look forward to us working together further. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.